This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Colon Cancer Screening and Polyp Surveillance. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Doctors William Wolf and Hiromi Shinya from Beth Israel Medical Center invented the Firebrow Optic Colonoscope in 1969. Prior to this, rigid scopes were used to do sigmoidoscopies, but this new flexible scope allowed clinicians to examine the entire colon through a small eyepiece. The subsequent decades saw advancements in colonoscopy technology, such as the addition addition of the polypectomy snare using wire and electrocautery and the advent of video endoscopy in the 1980s. But despite this, colonoscopies were not common in that time. In early 1985, President Ronald Reagan had a positive fecal occult blood test after White House physician Colonel John E. Hutton noticed a concerning pattern in his blood work of dropping hemoglobin levels. His doctor followed this up with a sigmoidoscopy where a benign polyp was removed. He initially declined to have further testing with a colonoscopy. However, Dr. Hutton did not give up. He employed the assistance of the First Lady, Nancy Reagan, to convince her husband. In July of 1985, the president finally had his colonoscopy and was found to have a villous tumor with an ulcerating core in the cecum. The next day, President Reagan underwent a right hemicolectomy to remove the tumor, which proved to be adenocarcinoma. The procedure was a success, and the president's cancer was fully cured by the procedure. The president's ordeal then helped put colonoscopies on the map and gain national acceptance. In 1996, the USPSTF issued its first colorectal cancer screening guidelines, recommending colonoscopies beginning at age 50. 
colonoscopy is unique in that it's the only cancer screening test we have that not only screens but also prevents cancer. In May of 2021, the USPSTF updated their colorectal cancer screening recommendation from starting at age 50 down to age 45. We're just a couple of weeks away from Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month in March, so I thought it would be a great time to have a webcast on the important topic of colorectal cancer screening and polyp surveillance. For this topic, I've invited a national leader on polyp surveillance. Dr. Peter Stanich is an associate professor of internal medicine at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, specializing in gastroenterology. He is a director of intestinal neoplasia and hereditary polyposis at Ohio State and the immediate past president of the National Society Collaborative Group of the Americas on Inherited Gastrointestinal Cancer. Pete, welcome to MedMed. Thank you for having me. Well, now that the cancer screening guidelines have been reduced down to age 45, do we have enough gastroenterologists to help do all these additional colonoscopies? That's a great question, and that was definitely a concern when that change was made. Um, I think the truth is, is that, you know, that varies depending on where your practice is mm-hmm. and in the part of the United States that you're in. Um, in major center, major cities with major medical centers, I think we do have that capacity and it hasn't been an issue, although, mm-hmm. you know, wait times may be getting a little bit longer. In other parts, you know, more rural areas, it may not be there. Mm-hmm. Part of what we'll talk about today is other options for colon cancer screening. So that may be potentially something that can help relieve some of that burden if colonoscopies are not readily available Mm -hmm. where you're practicing. Okay, thank you so much. If you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there along with the slides and the instructions to receive your CME credit and ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcast. Search for OSU MedNet21 on your podcast app. If you have any questions about our program, please send those our way using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Pete? Thank you again, everyone, for your attention today. I'm excited to talk to you today about colorectal cancer screening and surveillance. I do have some disclosures. These relate to research studies um, that are paid to my institution, focus on hereditary colon cancer syndromes, and won't be relevant today. We do have a packed agenda, so I kind of just want to get started, but uh, you can look at this as we're going through. We'll talk about some standard definitions to make sure we're on the same page, talk about why is colon cancer important, early onset colon cancer, and then why we're we're all here, talking about screening and surveillance, and then talk a little bit about genetic testing criteria for um, colorectal cancer syndromes. Now, to talk about definitions, to make sure that we're all speaking the same language, and when you talk with your colleagues that we're all... um, making sure that we understand each other. Screening procedures or screening tests are done to identify polyps or cancer in a patient without a personal history of cancer or precancerous lesions. And importantly, there should be no signs or symptoms of suspected colorectal disease. So if someone's had adenomatous polyps in the past or colon cancer in the past, they no longer qualify as screening tests or procedures. Surveillance testing is done to identify polyps or cancer in an individual with previously identified neoplastic polyps or cancer. But again, there should be no signs or symptoms of suspected colorectal disease. So these are tests or, or procedures done in someone who's had colon cancer, who's had you know, adenomas. Um, but still, again, not that we wouldn't use this to discuss procedures being done for someone with rectal bleeding or symptoms. And then finally, diagnostic tests are those that are done to, to investigate signs or symptoms of suspected colorectal disease. 
Average risk will be someone with no personal history of colon neoplasia, and then importantly, no family history of colorectal cancer or advanced adenomas in a first-degree relative. And to remind everyone, a first-degree relative includes parents, siblings, or children. High risk varies a little bit by guidelines, but we're really, almost all guidelines now use what we'll talk about today. Um, the United States Multi-Society Task Force, which is the guidelines we'll discuss most today, um, use this as well, and this is what I'll be referring to. Um, but this is, someone is high risk if you have a first degree relative with colorectal cancer, advanced adenoma, or an advanced serrated adenoma, and we'll talk more about those as we go through today. Now, why is colorectal cancer important? These are statistics that are hot off the presses. Uh, um, these come out every three years and just came out earlier this, or late last year, earlier this year. But colon and rectal cancer is the third most common cancer in both men and women in the United States, and the third most common cause of cancer death for men and women. The overall lifetime risk is about 4%. So this is certainly something that affects um, patients, families, you know, I think almost everyone knows someone who's had colon cancer or been affected by it personally. Thankfully, colorectal cancer incidence and mortality has been improving over the years. Um, if you look at this chart on the, the top three lines are incidents, and you can see for both men and women and overall in green, that incidence has been going down. And then most importantly, mortality has been going down over the years as well. If you look at the bottom of the graph, the years of diagnosis or death, that red arrow denotes 1996 or 1997, which as you heard in the introduction is when widespread colorectal cancer screening started in the United States. And that's where that notch is, or you can see that increase in incidence is when more people started having colonoscopies and we found more early colon cancers. But then you can see after that, we've had a, a steep decline in colon cancer incidence and mortality. Colorectal cancer remains a disease of older people. You can see here incidence rates per 100,000 people. And starting around age 50, that does start to go up significantly. And you can see the older that people get, the higher risk there is for colon cancer. Now, we will talk more about this, but you can see in 40 to 44 year olds and younger that some colon cancer does happen. And even though it's rare, this is a growing concern. So these are some other uh, graphs of incidence. And if you look at this in the top right hand um, graph here is for, for individuals aged 20 to 49 years of age. And unfortunately, you can see that colorectal cancer rates are increasing. And this includes distant disease, which is the most concerning, you know, denoting advanced um, colon cancer. And so this has been a major focus of research and concern in the lay press. Um, this um, made waves and, you know, was on the front page of Yahoo and Google um, when this came out. So this is definitely something we want to talk more about. So how can we reduce advanced early onset colorectal cancer, colon cancer in people under age 40 or 45, depending on which definition you use? These are small steps that any healthcare provider, primarily I would say primary care provider, should take. We want you to aggressively investigate red flag symptoms of colorectal cancer, even in young people. You know, unfortunately, when we're hearing stories from survivors of colon cancer or young people have had colon cancer, they often feel dismissed um, with their symptoms initially and report waiting very long time to get their symptoms taken seriously or have investigations done. And then something that I think is under-recognized is being aware of the family history of colon cancer and how that will impact screening for your patient. When we looked at a lot of our data from the Ohio State University, most of the early onset colorectal cancer 
with people with a family history is age 40 to 45, and we'll talk a little bit about the, the screening recommendations of why that's so important to make sure everyone's coming in at age 40 if you do have a family history. Now, red flag symptoms um, are something that we want everyone to be mindful of, you know, especially before the screening age. So as I mentioned, patients frequently report that these symptoms are dismissed, and we know this needs to change. In a large recent study, four red flag symptoms were significantly associated with early onset colorectal cancer. That includes abdominal pain, rectal bleeding, diarrhea, and iron deficiency anemia. I underline rectal bleeding and iron deficiency anemia because I think these are going to be less common than abdominal pain and diarrhea. What I thought was interesting about this study is that one of these symptoms does increase risk, but you really start to see much um, higher rate of increased risk if there's two or three or four of these symptoms. So one thing to focus on would be if someone has rectal bleeding and abdominal pain or diarrhea and iron deficiency anemia, these are people who definitely need investigation for colorectal cancer with a colonoscopy. Now shifting gears to standard colorectal cancer screening, there are multiple modalities available. Colonoscopy is the most commonly performed in the United States and we'll certainly talk a lot about that. Flexible sigmoidoscopy is kind of like a half colonoscopy. Um, some benefits of this would be there's a different prep, so instead of an oral prep, often you can do this with um, enemas. You also often can do this unsedated, although that's less and less accepted by patients, but this is something that can be beneficial if someone doesn't have a driver to bring them home from a procedure. And then fit in the multi-target stool DNA or Cologuard test are also um, very common approved uh, stool-based testing. One thing to remember is that any screening is better than none. As I mentioned, in the United States, colonoscopy is the most common done, but all of these are approved and beneficial. So we'll talk more about this, um, but remember, you know, we'd rather someone get screened any way possible rather than trying to wait or talk them into getting a colonoscopy. So colorectal cancer is important because it saves lives and prevents col colon cancer. Col sorry, colon cancer screening is important. Um, this is an adapted table from the Preventative Services Task Force. If you look, colonoscopy every 10 years um, saves 58 ca cases of colon cancer. But the fecal immunochemical test or FIT done yearly also is very effective and prevents 50 cases of colon cancer per 1,000 individuals. Fecal call blood test is done less often now, but that's also very effective. And then the stool DNA FIT or Cologuard done every three years also has been shown to reduce the risk for colorectal cancer. I'm not gonna talk very much about CT colonography or the so-called virtual colonoscopy, but that is approved. That's done every five years. The one thing that I, you know, I think it's clear um, that, that we need to discuss with patients if you are gonna order that or if that's what they prefer, it's not as virtual as it seems. There still is a bowel prep very similar to a colonoscopy prep. There still is a tube with air insufflation. And it has a lot of the same discomfort associated with a colonoscopy, but without sedation. And then if a large polyp is found, that patient still needs a colonoscopy. So it's not quite as virtual as some people may think when they read about it. I um, mean, it's important to be upfront with patients if you are gonna go that route. And then as I mentioned, sigmoidoscopy is an option with good evidence behind it, but that's been fading uh, from use in the United States. So multiple guidelines for colorectal cancer exist. The American College of Gastroenterology, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, the U.S. Multi-Society Task Force on Colorectal Cancer, which I think is the most commonly used and what I'm gonna discuss today. 
the Preventative Services Task Force, and then the American College of Physicians had a recent, recent guidelines released, which I think is important to mention. I don't know how widely used this is, um, but they, are, they came out recommending starting at age 50, which is really going against the tide of all of the other organizations um, and was not well received by uh, people in working in colon cancer and colon cancer screening, um, but something to monitor um, with that. But just uh, so everyone is aware and for transparency, that is the only guideline left that recommends starting at age 50. As you heard in the introduction, now average risk colorectal cancer screening is recommended to start at age 45. Uh, the reason for that is that the current incidence of colorectal cancer is similar in 45 to 49 year olds now as it was in 50 year olds when we started screening in the mid 90s. So um, when you look at this, this is very similar to the table that we went through earlier, looking at the additional life years gained um, by starting at age 45 with these different modalities compared to age 50. Um, if you are looking at this data, it's important to remember that this is per 1,000 individuals. I think the important thing to th take from this table is that the US MSTF does recognize colonoscopy every year and fecal immunochemical test, or sorry, colonoscopy every 10 years and fecal immunochemical testing every year is tier one tests and the favored tests, although all of these can be used and are beneficial. Now, the United States Preventative Services Task Force did change their recommendations in 2021 to support screening in, in people aged 45 to 49. This was important for several reasons. One, the USPSTF is very conservative, and this really signaled how strong the evidence was to support this. Also, this had major ramifications for Medicaid and Medicare and even private insurance coverage for these tests. So that should not be an issue now, which is a, a question that we get very commonly. But where are we at now? We mentioned that, you know, was there a big rush of 45-year-olds coming in to get colonoscopies, which was some of the concern when, when this change was made. Unfortunately, only 20% of eligible 45 to 49-year-olds are up-to-date with screening and only 8% or around 8% of uninsured patients. So we still have lots of room for improvement. This is something where part of the um, benefit of changing to age 45 is that by the time we hit 50, hopefully th numbers will look better. So it's not that we need everyone the day they turn 45 to come in for a colonoscopy, but hopefully you know, through these years, we'll get more and more people screened and then we can get closer to our goal of 80% screening um, there, which has been a, a slow trend towards that. Now, I did mention colorectal cancer screening um, is not where we want it. So our goal was 80% by 2018, and we've fallen short of that. Um, I do have Ohio here, you know, not proud that it's in the middle, but hopefully we can get better. And sad to see that Michigan is beating us as a proud Ohio State uh, Buckeye. Um, hopefully that's something that we can continue to improve um, and pass them by. But you can see colorectal cancer screening needs to get better and no matter what state that you're in. So one way that's exciting that may be coming to do that and close that gap is blood-based testing. I just wanna mention this briefly because I think this is something that when patients hear about, they're gonna be interested in. So these are tests to detect genomic or epigenomic changes in cell-free DNA that's shed by colorectal tumors into the blood. Um, the early reports, and this has not been presented in peer-reviewed fashion, but the early reports are that the sensitivity and specificity for colorectal cancer are gonna be similar to stool-based testing. Um, the thought is it probably won't be as good for advanced adenomas, um, but also we know stool-based testing is not very good for advanced adenomas. 
many do project approval in 2024 or 2025 for these tests. So this is something that's coming sooner rather than later. One study that I was excited to see is that when um, blood-based testing was offered to people who had refused colonoscopy initially, we did see a significant increase in the uptake of testing. And in this study, went from 13% of patients being screened to 30.5%. So I think this is something where hopefully this can help us you know, get from that 60% up to 80 or 90% of screening. And I think patient uptake this will be, will be high, just like we've talked about. I think patients are used to getting blood drawn you know, for cholesterol, you know, hemoglobin A1C. You know, if this is something that's easy to add on there, then this could really you know, bring us to that next level. Now, a brief uh, talk about non-endoscopic options. I mentioned that FIT or fecal immunochemical test is preferred to the fecal called blood test. The reason for that is it has better performance. There's less reliance on dietary restrictions, which may impact um, the testing. It's only a single sample to collect, and many FOBTs are supposed to be two or three samples, which I don't think anyone does. Um, I think this is really faded from practice, but something that I always try and highlight just in case. But fecal call blood testing done in the office with a rectal exam is not acceptable and is, has a very high false positive rate. So that is something that hopefully no one's doing anymore. Now, why do we prefer FIT over multi-target stool DNA? That's because FIT is more effective and less costly. Okay, And so if you look at FIT done yearly, there is a, the highest... Um, life years adjusted per person, and it's very cheap, which is really the sweet spot for screening tests. This is why the FIT test is the preferred test in Canada and the United Kingdom, where they, and um, large scale you know, screening programs um, is, are almost always based on FIT. You can see colonoscopy every 10 years does have you know, very close um, adjusted life year benefit, but is expensive, but the fecal DNA testing is more expensive and has the lowest quality of life years adjusted. One drawback of FIT in you know, the current United States screening program, this does require people to get yearly testing, which I think may be hard if people don't come in every year to the clinic, um, or you know, it's a healthy 40-year-old who isn't coming in to see their primary care provider, that may be hard to accomplish. And that's where the longer intervals of the stool DNA test or you know, the colonoscopy may be beneficial and a little bit different than you know, a screening program in Canada, let's say. Now, what do we expect after your patient does a FIT or a multi-target stool DNA? Well, when it's positive, it's important to remember that only 1% of those patients will have colon cancer and another 27% have advanced colorectal neoplasia. So I always remember about 30% of patients will have advanced neoplasia. Um, this is often something where patients come in scared to death on the day of their colonoscopy when they've had a positive FIT test. They think it means that they have colon cancer. Um, and I, before we start, I try and talk them down that this is a test that has you know, high false positive rate, you know, it may just be a small polyp, maybe a large polyp, you know, does not mean that you have colon cancer. Um, I think that message from the primary care provider needs to walk that line of not being overly reassuring where people don't come in for a colonoscopy, but also letting someone know that it's not time to, you know, sell your house and buy a boat and move to the beach. This is something where that's why we did the test is to find colon cancer or large polyps early. And so go and get the colonoscopy done and see what we're dealing with. Now, after someone has a positive stool screening, it's important to get the colonoscopy done by six months. There is some data that may say we can slide that out to nine months, but I think six months is really the good target. And that's when most data shows that there is an increased risk for colon cancer starting then. 
Um, and so this is something where I know in our system, we try and get positive stool screening in sooner than this. Um, but certainly you don't want you know someone waiting years and years after a positive fit or uh, stool DNA test to get their colonoscopy. And I would encourage you, this is something where you may want to reach out to your endoscopist that you refer to to say, is there a way that I can call and get these people in earlier? Or do you have some sort of a program set up to find these referrals and get them in um, since it is more time sensitive than some other tests that may be ordered? The other thing that comes up very often is that what do we do if there's a positive fit or stool DNA test and a negative colonoscopy? So the guidelines are now clear that if a colonoscopy is high quality, meaning a good bowel prep um, with good withdrawal time, then no further testing needs done. And you can recommend following the standard screening or surveillance guidelines based on the colonoscopy findings. Um, this also goes a long way to why I try and talk to patients before the colonoscopy to say, if we don't find anything or if we just find small polyps, we can be very reassured. It doesn't mean that we missed something. And what was reassuring is that recent data has come out that in patients in this situation who had a positive stool test and negative colonoscopy, they weren't found to have an increased risk for aerodigestive cancers. Meaning, you know, we used to be worried, does this mean they had pancreatic cancer? Does this mean they had lung cancer or stomach cancer? And really the expected rate of cancers was the same as the general population for these, for these patients. So if, a, if someone gets a good colonoscopy and their average risk and they got, had, sorry, if their average risk they had a positive fit, they had a good colonoscopy, they can go 10 years until their next one. Now let's shift to high risk screening, okay? And this is something where we're talking again about the multi-society task force recommendations. So if someone has a colorectal cancer or advanced adenoma in a first degree relative, which again is a um, parent or sibling or child, then they should start colonoscopy at age 40 or 10 years or 10 years below the age of colon cancer advanced adenoma in that person. So, you know, if your brother had colon cancer at age 60, you should start at 40. If you had colon cancer at age 45, you should start at age 35, okay? Um, now, if you have two first degree relatives with advanced adenomas or colon cancer, then you wanna start at age 40 or 10 years before and go every five years. Or if your relative was under the age of 60, then you wanna start early and go every five years. But if your relative was at advanced age over age 60 with an ad advanced adenoma or colon cancer, then you can return to average risk intervals. Um, this is something that I think some providers may stay at five years and some guidelines recommend that everyone with a family history of colon cancer or advanced adenoma, uh, sorry, everyone with a family history of advanced adenoma or colon cancer should stick at five years. So you know, that's why I recommend find one guideline that you can remember that works for you and follow that strictly so you're not kind of switching back and forth or, or missing people. And just because this is important, I just want to clarify again, if you have a first degree relative with colon cancer advanced adenoma, start colonoscopy at age 40 or 10 years earlier than that um, colon cancer or advanced adenoma in the family member. But if, and if the advanced adenoma or colon cancer was under age 60, then you should be going every five years. And this is something we know we can do better on and really help prevent early onset colon cancer in our patients by following these more closely. I would also favor treating advanced serrated lesions in the same fashion. It is not specified in these US MSTF guidelines, but in many other guidelines it is. And I think this was just, this is something that will be clarified um, in future editions. So now we talked about colonoscopy, especially in our high risk patients. Let's talk about how effective colonoscopy is. And this is something that's been in the news the last few years. So we know colonoscopy is not perfect. In a meta-analysis that is fairly recent data, 
um, that looked at over 15,000 tandem colonoscopies. So colonoscopies done one after the other. The miss rates for adenoma was high, is 26% for all polyps. Thankfully, advanced adenomas was only, miss rate was only 10% or 9%, but higher than we'd like to see. Now, one important thing to put this into perspective is when you're talking about other colorectal cancer screening modalities, we know that FIT finds about 20% of advanced adenomas compared to 90% here for colonoscopy. We know that fecal, um, that stool DNA finds about 40% of advanced adenomas compared to 90% for colonoscopy. And for CT colonography or the virtual colonoscopy, they don't even report on adenomas five millimeters or under. So all the, that kind of puts these numbers in perspective that colonoscopy is not perfect, but it's very effective at finding polyps and especially very effective at finding big polyps, um, which is really you know, the name of the game. Serrated polyps we'll talk about, those are trickier to find and that is why that miss rate is a little bit higher and we'll talk more about that. Now, one study that kind of brought this into the light was a Nordic study, which made a big splash in the New England Journal of Medicine um, in 2022. This was a trial that invited people aged 55 to 64 to come in for colonoscopy in countries that really had no screening program before this. Um, they invited in a one to two ratio, so the one where people were invited for a single screening colonoscopy, or the majority of people received no invitation and no screening, which was usual care. So the results were a little bit disappointing. So of the 28,000 invited for colonoscopy, only 11,000 came in for a colonoscopy. The adenoma detection rate, and we'll talk more about this, but adenoma detection rate is kind of like the batting average of the endoscopist. It's how many screening colonoscopies do you find an uh, adenoma in? And that was variable between countries. So Sweden was 14%, the other countries were 27 to 35%. You know, for many years, uh, um, quality recommendation in the United States has been 25% or over, and a lot of us think that is way too low. So just to kind of put that in perspective, these adenoma detection rates were fairly low. Um, but in the intention to treat analysis, there was a risk reduction of colon cancer for 18%, but no change in mortality, um, which was alarming and not what was expected. The main focus, you know, once, unfortunately, that was what was put on things like CNN and the news and patients read about. But when you look at the per protocol analysis, so people who ended up coming in for colonoscopy, 31%, or there was a 31% reduction in colon cancer risk and a 50% reduction in colon cancer mortality, which I think if you look at that, uh, you know, that is what we're looking for. So my take home points in Nordic is that colonoscopy for colon cancer screening works when people get the test. People are saying we may see further benefit in the future. So, you know, once we look at the people who had polyps removed on that initial screening, 10 years from now, we may see continued mortality drop and maybe enough to make that intention to treat analysis significant. Um, but we do have to you know, make sure we remember colonoscopy benefit may be overestimated um, and maybe it's more in line with other methods like sigmoidoscopy, which have been found to improve you know, mortality, but maybe not quite as much as we thought colonoscopy may be doing. Um, so something to think about this hasn't been brought up to me in clinic in a while, but I think some patients may still question this. Now that leads into discussion of um, colonoscopy quality, okay? And this uh, New England Journal paper by Corley et al. out of the Kaiser Group in California, I think is my favorite paper I've ever read. I think I've had it in about every talk I've given since this came out. But they looked at over 300 colonoscopies by, performed by over 130 gastro, gastroenterologists who do, who do colonoscopy. Basically, they took their 136 docs and split up, up into five quintiles, okay? So 
low performers who had adenoma detection rate of 70 to 19%, all the way through the highest performers who had that adenoma detection rate of 33 to 52%. And when you look at this, again, remember that adenoma detection rate is really the batting average of, of colonoscopy. You know, how many screening procedures are you finding and removing adenomas? And if you look at the low performers and use those as the baseline for the number of interval colorectal cancers um, that came up, so how many colon cancers came up between colonoscopies, if you use them as the baseline, you can see the better the colonoscopist got, the higher their adenoma detection rate was, the lower the risk of interval colon cancer was in their patients. And this was really a game changer. You know, we, this really shows that adenoma detection rates, you know, removing adenomas, or even if it's just a marker for a very good exam, are critically important. And I think we'd all want our patients, we'd all want ourselves to be going to doctors who are in that high quintile and that high adenoma detection rate so we have the best long-term outcomes. And kind of the key take home was it, from this was that every 1% increase in adenoma detection rate was associated with a 3% decrease in the risk of interval colon cancer. And we took that to mean that even small improvements in the, of adenoma detection are gonna really impact the risk for interval colon cancers. And this really sprung a lot of quality um, improvement and quality measuring in endoscopy. Now you may say, doc, that's, that data is 10 years old. Well, this is a more recent publication. Now these numbers are a little bit different for adenoma detection rate because this is for patients who were fit positive. So that gives you a higher you know, rate of, of colon polyps in these patients. But again, you could see high performers had lower interval colorectal cancer rates than low performers, okay? So this, again, just tells us that a high quality colonoscopy is very important uh, and very effective, whereas low quality colonoscopies still seem to be beneficial, but not as beneficial. And I always say, if we're gonna do it, we should be doing it, uh, you know, doing it right. And then again, they found that for adenoma detection rates, um, even a 1% increase led to a significant reduction in post-colorectal cancer. So again, just important that effective colonoscopy is really the, the name of the game here. Now, when we do a colonoscopy, what are we looking for? And so, you know, those are colon polyps and primarily, you know, most commonly adenomas, but we'll also talk about sessile serrated lesions or sessile serrated polyps, or sometimes I still slip and call them sessile serrated adenomas. So there's different ways to describe this. So endoscopic appearance would be sessile, which is that top picture where the base is attached to the wall, or pedunculated, which is less common in the bottom picture, but where the polyp has a stalk um, from the head of the polyp to the wall. And then pathology, we talk about tubular adenomas. Those are about 80% of all adenomas. Tubular villus, which is kind of a mixture, and then villus, which is uh, the highest risk, um, which has finger-like glands. Now here's some pictures of sessile adenomatous polyps. You can't invite a GI doc to give a talk without some colonoscopy pictures. So you can see that these can be very subtle. And if I didn't have this circled, you may not be able to pick it up. But once we find it, then we can remove it. And we know we reduce that, the risk of, or we took away the risk of that polyp turning into cancer. Again, this is a little bit smaller polyp, you know, a little bit more protuberant and easier to see, but when we find it, we can remove it. Now, this patient did have some bleeding afterwards, but I was able to put a hemoclip, which is like a little metal clothespin, and close that defect and stop the bleeding. And then this one was a little bit trickier, so there's a small polyp, you know, easy to see, but on the other side of the fold was another polyp, and that's a reason why we want to be very careful and make sure we look on both sides of all of these folds, but, you know, a way of how polyps can be missed. But for this patient, we're able to find those and remove both of them. Now, one thing I always like to highlight, so for adenomas, by definition, they are all dysplastic. So even small tubular adenomas that may not have it mentioned on pathology reports have low-grade dysplasia. 
depending on the pathologist, they may just call them tubular adenomas. They may say tubular adenoma with low-grade dysplasia, but those are synonymous terms. Now, advanced adenomas, this is really, you know, why colonoscopy is effective is to find these and remove them before they can turn into cancer. So to classify as an advanced adenoma, there needs to be high-grade dysplasia. It should be one centimeter in size or greater or have any villus histologies. So that includes villus and tubulovillus colonoscopies. So these are important for everyone to remember. Again, high-grade dysplasia, one centimeter in size or greater or any villus histology would qualify a polyp as advanced. And these are, have all been found at polyps that have a higher risk for progression to colon cancer and development of future colorectal cancer. Also, three or more adenomas at a single colonoscopy is also a risk factor, and you can see that may lead to changes in surveillance when we get to that. The reason colonoscopy is so effective is that polyps generally follow this nice adenoma to carcinoma sequence, where it goes from tiny polyp to small polyp to advanced adenoma to cancer. So not all adenomas will progress uh, down this, and some may stay benign and indolent for a long time, but we know some do. Um, that usually takes between 10 to 15 years, and that's where that 10-year um, interval came from, is that this is a very slow-growing process, so that's why we can give people longer in between. Now, when we find a pub, the primary mode of resection is what we call the cold snare. Um, I think this uh, series of photos is a great way to illustrate this, but you know, we find the polyp in A and B, and then we open up our snare, which is like a metal lasso. Now, everything looks big here, but that snare is about a centimeter across in size. I would say this is probably like a four to five millimeter polyp. But we put the snare down around the mucosa, and then the endoscopy tech tightens the snare down. You wanna make sure you get a nice rim of normal mucosa around the polyp to make sure you're resecting the entire polyp. And then you tell them to cut and they snap it through and it, and it cuts the polyp off. Um, and it's very effective at removing this and you suck up the tissue into the scope and send it to pathology. Now, cold snare has been really taken over because there's a very low risk of bleeding afterwards and it's very, very safe with you know, almost a zero rate of perforations from this. If polyps are bigger, sometimes you need other tools like cautery, um, which we won't talk too much about. But this is really the standard for almost all polyps that we've seen now. Now, I just want to highlight this endoscopic resection technique. This is called endoscopic mucosal resection. So for polyps that are in a hard position or difficult to see, we can inject tinted saline um, or different solutions underneath the polyp. And you can see that really brings up the border of the polyp. The polyp doesn't take up the dye, but the normal mucosa you can see through. So this is another way where we can give ourselves um, a little bit of a bumper there to remove bigger polyps or make sure that we can resect the entire polyp, which is also important for quality, not just finding polyps, but removing all of them. Sessile serrated lesions I mentioned, um, this is something that, you know, starting in the mid nineties, we realized this was a cause of some interval colon cancers and that these are pre-cancerous lesions and we've been working much harder to find them, but they can be very subtle. So in this picture, kind of right in the middle is a serrated adenoma and it's not just because it's on the screen or this picture is a little old now before we had high def, but these are just hard to see. But here we again did the, the submucosal lift. You can see that polyp um, much better. You can see the borders and that allows us to do a complete resection. So sessile serrated adenoma detection rate is kind of the new kid on the block. It's been less clear how important it was, but this is a, a very recent study that came out that shows a similar story to the early studies for adenoma detection rate that Endoscopists who are finding more serrated polyps have a lower um, post-colonoscopy colon cancer 
risk. So again, just another quality measure that we're looking at and you know, want to make sure that we're doing good exams and finding all of these polyps. Now, I mentioned sesalostrated lesions are harder to see. You know, often it's just kind of a subtle um, texture change in the mucosa. We often look for a mucosal cap, which I'll show you in the next picture. But once we find them, we resect them the same way. But you can see here, this polyp is very subtle, but you can see it looks a little bit more yellow. There's some mucosa there. And then when you get closer, you can see the polyp and then we can resect it. And then again, an another polyp kind of hiding here. I would use this to, to highlight how important the bowel prep is because these, you know, if there was a puddle there or some stool adherent, you would not be able to see these. Now that's a good segue to why bowel prep adequacy is important. All those pictures I just saw, the bowel preps were pristine. Unfortunately, that's not always the way things are in the real world. But if your patient has an inadequate bowel prep, it's important to bring them back within a year. Okay, and that's something that not all endoscopists may recommend or may not make it clear, but this is something that's very important that if you don't get a good enough look, we need to be bringing these people back or maybe even shorter if they have other polyps or advanced adenomas that we find while we're doing it. Now, these, this is a good schematic. So A and B are inadequate bowel prep. I think we can all agree, you don't have to be an endoscopist to know that you're not gonna find a polyp under that adherent stool where C and D are better and we can clear things up, see through the liquid and find polyps. So this is a part that's really in the patient's hands, but we need to get a, a really good look to make sure we get that effective colonoscopy. Now, I really like this study um, that was looking at uh, real world effectiveness of colonoscopy preparations, because there's a lot of options out there. You know, almost every option was preferred by patients compared to go lightly. So I, I do think this is something we can, don't need to be dogmatic that go lightly is, is you know, the key. Really, you know, whatever, prep your patient will tolerate and drink all of is going to be better. And um, for this, you know, Miralax with Gatorade actually came out ahead and significantly better as far as a bowel prep. I think the real focus needs to be on split dosing, which is where you take half the prep the day before or the evening before the procedure, and you take half the prep overnight or in the morning. And this is really the win-win um, for patients. Not only do you get a better bowel prep, but it's also much easier to tolerate the bowel prep. So that split prep, even though people may say, well, I don't wanna wake up at 6 a.m. and drink a bowel prep, it's gonna be a lot easier for them and get a better test, which is really the name of the game. Now, I mentioned adenoma detection rate and how important that is. And thankfully in the United States, we know that adenoma detection rate is going up across practices. And starting in 2014, once we kind of realized how important it was, that has been going up steadily. And I think that's still increasing. I know at our practice at Ohio State, we are continuing to see increase year over year. Now, something that's exciting and the new modality that may help increase that adenoma detection rate is artificial intelligence. This is something that is now approved for clinical practice. And I'll show you some videos that are pretty cool coming up. But that computer-aided detection or artificial intelligence did show a significant increase in adenoma detection rate on this meta-analysis of the early studies. Now, this is a video of the AI in action. And as you can see here, in real time on your screen, a blue box goes around the polyp that helps bring it to your attention to find it and resect it. Now, in this uh, video, you know, this is a polyp that I think every endoscopist would see. But, you know, I think this is something where anyone walking by this video would say, oh, that's nice that it has a box on it. And I think we'd all say, you know, is there, if there's a way to help your doctor find more polyps, we want them to be using it. So this is something that will be coming into practice and is being rolled out um, as we speak. Now, this next video shows uh, 
less well-prepped or a poorly prepped colonoscopy and a much more subtle polyp. And I think this is another reason that artificial intelligence may be helpful. You know, the endoscopist would be cleaning this, spraying water, trying to clean this up and may not be looking for the polyp. Um, and, but this will help show that there is a polyp there, something that could be missed when you're doing other activities. Um, so this is something that we're very excited about. I think, you know, as I mentioned, it's in clinical practice now and, and coming out to more and more practices. Now, once we find all these polyps, what do we recommend for our patients? So surveillance um, is important. So if someone's average risk and has a normal colonoscopy, then they can go 10 years, and that hasn't changed in, many year, in, in a long time. If you find one or two adenomas, one of the new recommendations that came out in 2019 is that we can stretch out to seven to 10 years. I think most people would recommend seven years, but I do think pretty soon we're gonna be recommending 10 years. And that's because people with one or two small adenomas probably, you know, with our equipment now, probably would not have been, have any of these found, you know, 20 years ago. And so these are really people that are close to average risk. And the data is showing that they have the same outcomes as people who don't have any polyps. Now, if you find sessile serrated polyps, we still recommend five years. If you find multiple adenomas, then that's something where now you can go out to five years. Although I think most people with three or four adenomas, we still recommend three years. And same with three or four sessile serrated polyps. And then advanced adenomas, advanced serrated lesions with dysplasia or traditional serrated adenomas, we recommend three years. And then we'll talk about this a little bit at the end, but if someone has 10 or more adenomas, that should be a trigger for genetic testing and a one-year follow-up. I kind of think of this as, as like texting and driving. The more polyps you're removing, the less you're just looking. So it's very common to miss polyps if you're taking off 10 or more polyps and you wanna make sure you get those before they cause a problem. Again, just to highlight the major changes that came in 2019, if you have take off one or two adenomas, you, can, you should recommend that seven to 10 year interval, um, which is a major change. Now, a question we often get is, well, what do you do on the next colonoscopy? So someone has one or two small adenomas, they come in and have a normal colonoscopy. Now you can go back to that average risk 10-year recommendation. What I wanna highlight is really that bottom line where if someone has an advanced adenoma, they come in in three years and have a normal colonoscopy, you really wanna stick at that five-year interval. That person is gonna be high risk ongoing, and so they won't be able to get back to that 10-year interval. The other question is, when do we stop? So the PSTF recommends stopping at age 75 with consideration of continuing through 85 based on comorbidities. The USMSTF has similar recommendations. It says that individualized between 76 and 85 and no screening after age 85. I, I agree with this. I think that's something where, you know, between 75 and 85, I think the primary care provider or the endoscopist can help a patient decide if this is something that, you know, will help extend life and help weigh the risk and benefits. It's a little bit less clear with surveillance, so there's no formal recommendations for this. I would again say we need to individualize this and based on the assessment of the risks and the benefits and the comorbidities, probably that same range of 75 to 85 of a time to stop is reasonable. And something to always remember is if we find colon cancer, would surgery be offered um, or accepted and would chemotherapy be offered or accepted? And if a patient's not healthy enough for a colon cancer resection, then we shouldn't be doing colon cancer surveillance. So in my last couple of minutes, I just wanna talk about when patients should be referred for GI genetic evaluation in 2023, or I guess now 2024. Um, so now the guidelines through the NCCN are that uh, genetic testing should be considered for anyone with colon cancer at any age. And this is something that's now in practice. And, you know, genetic testing now is very cheap, uh, very accessible, and you know something that should be easily accomplished for any patient. 
If there's a personal or family history suspicious for Lynch syndrome, that person should be referred for genetic testing. We could probably do a whole lecture just on that. Um, but if there's lots of cancers in the family, especially colon and endometrial cancer, you need to be thinking about Lynch syndrome and refer that patient to a, a genetic counselor. If someone has more than 10 cumulative colon adenomas, which is a surprisingly high number of people, then they qualify for genetic testing. If there's two GI hamartomas, which is a more rare type of polyp, and then if there's a family member with a known hereditary cancer syndrome, you want to get that patient in front of you with that family member in to see if they can get tested and hopefully we can clear them or help reduce their risk. Now I mentioned these cumulative colon, pol colon polyp numbers, so 10 adenomas, I just want to highlight again. That's not 10 adenomas on one procedure, that's 10 adenomas lifetime um, qualifies for genetic testing. And this is a brief snapshot from the NCCN guidelines, but you can see here that if someone has 10 or more adenomas, Cumulatively, they should be getting referred for our genetic risk assessment. Now, when we see these patients, we separate them initially into non-polyposis and polyposis, okay? And so non-polyposis doesn't mean that they don't have any colon polyps. It just means they don't have lots of colon polyps, right? And so the most common is Lynch syndrome, which affects about one out of 300 people. So very common. I always tell everyone, if you don't have any Lynch syndrome patients in your practice, you're just not catching them because they're definitely people that you're seeing. And then um, if we think about polyposis patients, we then separate them into the pathology and histology of their polyps. Then you can see there's a lot of different mutations and syndromes that, could be, that can cause this, these phenotypes. But the good news now is genetic testing, whether we're looking at one gene or 90 genes, it's all the same price and comes back at the same time. So we almost always do what we call multi-gene panel testing and we'll rule out all of these at, at one time. Last thing I want to mention, just as genetic testing becomes more common, I'm sure everyone has people walk into their practice with genetic testing results. And this is something where hopefully I can clear up some of the confusion. So benign or likely benign variants, they're not even included on modern reports, but those are non-disease causing, very common, not anything we need to do anything about. Pathogenic or likely pathogenic, we treat those the same. Those are disease causing and what we're looking for. And that's why we want to use to change management. Now the gray zone, the variant of uncertain significance, those are common, about, I think about 30 to 40% of people will have those, especially if it's an underrepresented minority. Um, but those are true unknowns. We don't use those for management. And that is something where we know 90% of variants of uncertain significance end up being benign when we get more information. So this is not something we wanna be sending people in for surgery for or extra colonoscopies for. Almost always that these are benign changes that we just don't have a, enough information to make that um, final call. So in summary, Colorectal cancer screening and surveillance is important and beneficial. I want you to be considering it for all your patients that you're seeing. Be very mindful of red flag symptoms at any age, and this is something that will hopefully help us curtail some of that increase in early onset colorectal cancer. Multiple options for screening exist, and please help your patient make the best decision for them. Um, we do think you know, telling them about the other options is gonna help get your screening numbers up to our goals. And then, Colonoscopy is, is really you know, beneficial, but high quality colonoscopy is the key. Thank you so much. That was really helpful. And I really appreciated all the detail that you went through to help make these decisions and referencing the different guidelines so we can look them up and use them in our practice. That was wonderful. Thank you so much.
And, um, you know, I do have some questions because, you know, you mentioned that it is recommended to start screening um, patients with or high risk patients, people who have family history of advanced adenomas um, in a different way than the average risk. But how do we know that? Because a lot of times I'll ask my patients, um, have your family members had polyps? They might know that answer. Mm. But very few of uh, the lay population is going to know what an advanced adenoma is. How do we kind of tease that out? That, that's a great question. And so, you know, some of the tips that I picked up are the tricks that I use. Mm -hmm. So to ask, you know, how often did that, uh, was that your relative coming in for colonoscopy? And if they say, oh, you know, they were really worried about it, they brought them back in a year, or they brought them back in three years, mm -hmm. then that's, uh, you know, a signal that that probably was an advanced adenoma. Mm -hmm. um, if they say, oh, they weren't worried about it, they came back in five years or 10 years, then I would, you know, not consider that an advanced adenoma. Okay. The guidelines do mention that you should try your best to confirm it. And really, mm -hmm. unless you have a high suspicion that was advanced adenoma, you can probably safely assume that it was not. Okay. Um, the other tip is if someone had surgery for a colon polyp, so they, they say, oh, it wasn't cancer, but it was a big polyp, that's getting less common. But in the years past, that was pretty commonly done for big polyps before we had some of the advanced resection techniques we have now. Mm -hmm. So certainly for if someone's you know mom had col uh, colon surgery for an for a polyp, I would say I would consider that an advanced adenoma. Okay, that's super helpful. I like that three-year tip. Yes. Now, um, let's, you know, red flag symptoms. Rectal bleeding, um, of course, is a red flag symptom, but it's also a, could be a benign symptom of something like a hemorrhoid or anal fissure yeah. and can be super common. Is there kind of a, um, a rule of thumb on how much bleeding uh, should prompt a patient to get a colonoscopy? There's not, you know, and, and that is probably a gap and that's a little bit hard to do. You know, I think it's hard for patients to say how much ble bleeding they're having and <laughs> something that sometimes they're embarrassed to say. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a couple ways you can look at it. So, you know, I often say, well, is this just, you know, a little bit of blood on the tissue paper when you wipe? Or is this something where you're seeing blood in the toilet bowl or blood on the stool mm -hmm. or, you know, a significant amount of bleeding? And if it's just a little bit of blood when someone wipes after a hard bowel movement, then I would be a little bit less concerned. Mm, okay. um, but even with that, if that persists over time or if, if it's concerning enough to the patient that they brought it up to their physician, I think we at least need to think about a colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. um, one rule of thumb that I have, and it's a little bit easier for me because I think by the time they get to a gastroenterologist, most people expect a colonoscopy or want a colonoscopy. So <laughs> it's an easy, you know, easier sell. But um, you know, if it's enough where you're thinking, does this patient need a colonoscopy? I think with some of the information we have about the delays in diagnosis, you probably mm -hmm. should be referring that patient for a colonoscopy. Okay, so have a low threshold for colonoscopy. Yes. Um, now, I really liked how you said, you know, we should be following up within six months and having that time frame for a positive stool-based screen. What about patients with red flag symptoms? How soon should you get a colonoscopy? Like, you know, should we be getting colonoscopy within a month or is six months still okay without you know, if we're having a period of monitoring? Yes, that's a hard question to answer. I think that probably varies case by case. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if someone has all four of those red flag symptoms we talked about, if they're having belly pain and diarrhea and iron deficiency anemia and rectal bleeding, it probably does need to be within a month, mm -hmm. you know, because that if it's not colon cancer, it's gonna be something like colitis or, or Crohn's disease and sure, something we wanna uh -huh. get people feeling better. Um, if it's only one or two of the red flag symptoms, then maybe you can go a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's not strict guidelines of when that needs to happen, but this is where I would recommend, you know, having uh, endoscopists that you're comfortable calling or emailing or, you know, sending a message through the electronic medical record mm -hmm. to say, hey, what do you think about this? Do we need to get it done sooner? Or, you know, even, hey, I'm worried about this patient. Can you please help them get in? Because I think we all know that there's some of that, you know, 
clinician judgment that mm -hmm. comes into it and you should feel comfortable reaching out to an endoscopist saying, hey, I really need a favor. Can you get this mm -hmm. patient in for me? Okay, so I think I, what I heard is that I should email you whenever I have a patient that I'm not sure what to do with. <laughs> I, I prefer uh, an inbox message okay. <laughs> rather, rather than email. But okay. I think we all, you know, I, I think not every, not, every, not every time, but certainly when you're worried about someone, sure. you should. Uh -huh. And part of that goes back to our referral system. So we're trying to figure out the best way to triage all these colonoscopy orders. And I think hopefully most practices have it set up where someone being done for red flag symptoms gets done sooner than someone mm -hmm. that's just sent for a screening colonoscopy at age 45. Mm -hmm. So so hopefully part some of that is uh, automated, but mm -hmm. also if you feel like your patient's not getting the care they need, reach out. Okay, perfect. Now, um, you've talked about the adenoma detection rate a lot, and it sounds like that makes a huge difference. So is there a way for us to find out an endoscopist's ADR? So there, there's not, you know, there's not like a public reporting system. I think part of the reason for that is that this is something we really want people to be able to measure, measure and get better and mm -hmm. really look at that quality improvement. And so not something that we want to be punitive or where people are trying to game the system or, you know, make their numbers look better so they still get referrals, but something where, you know, every endoscopist looks and say, how, how can I get better? How am I doing? Um, what's interesting is we know that if you tell endoscopists where, where their adenoma detection rates compared to their partners, they get better. And mm -hmm. so that's something where just telling people where they're at, everyone wants to do a good job. Mm -hmm. um, and especially if you say, hey, you're at, you're at 25, but you know, the re everyone else is at 35, then people take longer and do a better job just by human nature. So mm -hmm. I look at it more as like a quality improvement. Um, I do think it would be fair to reach out to the endoscopist that you refer to, to say, hey, are you guys people doing like quality measuring? Do you mm -hmm. have a program set up for this? Um, and that's something that you should feel comfortable asking. If they're not mm -hmm. even measuring, that would be a concern for me. Yeah. Um, but if they're measuring and they have you know, remediation programs in place, then I would be very reassured. Okay, wonderful. For a high-risk patient, does the surveillance interval differ from the tables that you showed? So the surveillance based on the, you know, if they found polyps, then those don't really change. Mm -hmm. But the, I would say the key to remember is you don't want to go longer than five years if someone's high risk because of family history or personal history. Uh -huh. So I would just kind of do a cap at five years. But okay. if you find an advanced adenoma in that patient, it doesn't need to be shorter than three years. Okay. Um, one interesting point, which I didn't mention, but I, I should have probably, is that so for young people with colon polyps, which is becoming more and more common, mm -hmm. we still recommend those average risk screening intervals for, or sorry, average uh, risk surveillance intervals. Mm -hmm. So we used to be worried that, you know, if someone had a colon polyp at 30, they were going to be very high risk and we need to do it again at a year. Mm -hmm. But what we're finding is that their outcomes on surveillance are very similar to older patients. Okay. So if you're, you know, 25 and you have a small adenoma, you can come back at seven years, just mm -hmm. like someone who was 50. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Um, this was really helpful. And I'm going to have to print out some of those tables you showed me and put them on my wall. <laughs> yes, I think everyone should have it pinned to their, to their yeah. desk. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Well, let's finish up today's program with a final key point. Pete? I think the key takeaway is that colorectal cancer screening is important. Um, it's something that impacts everyone and that there's multiple options. So please you know, talk to your patients about the options that are right for them and keep it front of mind when you're seeing people in the office. Thanks for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging on to ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Join us again next week with my guest, Dr. Trent Hall, to learn about chronic pain and addiction. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.